One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Longenbach, author of five volumes of poetry and six books of criticism, including The Art of the Poetic Line, The Virtues of Poetry, and Lyric Knowledge. His poetry collections include Threshold, Fleet River, Draft of a Letter, The Iron Key, and his new book entitled Earthling. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The New York Times, and The Nation, among others. He teaches at the University of Rochester and the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. In his new collection, Earthling, Longenbach explores themes of mortality and the mystery of the self, sorrow, the environment, transcendence, and groundedness on the earth. We began the discussion focused on what transitions a group of poems into a coherent collection. I didn't begin with any notion of a theme or an idea. I I don't work well that way. Um, I'm not good at getting ideas, I suppose. But what happened was the first poem that I wrote was the last poem in the collection called uh, Pastoral. And when I wrote that poem, it just, something clicked. It sounded a little different to me. The tone was different than the poems I had written years previously in uh, the previous book called The Iron Key. There was a kind of sort of post-experiential amusement to it, a kind of sweetly weary tone that contained the possibility of a kind of quietly wry humor. And I liked that. And then it was a matter of trying to figure out how I did it so that I could do it again. (laughs) And, you know, one poem led to another. And the themes of the collection, the sense of being this little inhabitant of the earth and looking up and out at the big wide questions of of eternity and mortality 
grew out of that effort to keep inhabiting that tone. So you said while you were answering that, that you're not good at getting ideas, but you have a whole book of poems. So what does that mean? I suppose that you could extract ideas from the poems, but I don't write from ideas. Or let me put it this way. You know, every human being who has ever lived, who has experienced the most profoundly devastating and joyous emotions, but almost none of those people write poems. Um, So having those feelings, having ideas, having a thing that you want to write about, that just gets your foot in the door. And what you have to have is a kind of intimate relationship with the language in a way that makes something spark qua words on the page, a sentence that's happening. And until that happens, the idea won't matter. Um, uh, and it begins to matter when you, you know, find a way of moving the words around that feels exciting and captures you and pushes you forward. That's my experience anyway. So basically, you find your way into poem more through the language or the syntax than the idea or an image. Absolutely. Um, again, I, I've got ideas. <laughs> I've got ideas and images, you know, till the cows come home. But it doesn't make me write a poem because uh, a poem, for the reader's experience, is these little black marks on the page that come together to make words, that come together to make sentences. Um, everything else, the ideas, the images, that's in your head. You have to put everything into the language and the language just to be the force that prompts the poem and motivates the poem and makes the poem happen both for the writer and the reader. And when you feel that happening as a writer, when you feel you know, that something is clicking and the language is moving you forward almost beyond your volition, you know, it's just the best feeling in the world. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not magic, but it feels magical. That's interesting, though, too, because there must be some almost synchronicity in, in your universe, maybe, or maybe, maybe it's just natural. What you're saying is that everyone has the same feelings because you get into these poems through the language, but there are repeating themes through, through your poems. You know, I noticed everything from talking about dogs and forests and sort of the mystery of the self that came into many poems, but that's not where you started off from. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, and I'm aware of that. And I came at a late stage of putting the book together to capitalize on those things. But the, that's not where the poems start. The poems happen. And then, you know, you you got two, and then you got five, and then you've got eight, and then you start to look at them, and I try to figure out what the hell I'm writing about. But I don't know what I'm writing about until that point. I, what I do know is that I'm inhabiting the language, and it's taking me somewhere. And then I have to become self-conscious about that and figure out where it's taken me. And that, to that point, where you notice, oh my God, I wrote three poems about the dog. Who knew? <laughs> or more importantly, uh, I say, ah, oh, I, I seem to be preoccupied uh, with questions of mortality here. Uh, I didn't even realize that was 
you know, so important to me until I saw it. And then, you know, it's then there are more obvious things to say about that. At a certain point in the process of writing the book, my mother did die, and um, and that that became an important location uh, for several of the poems. Uh, and in a way, what I was already writing was an arena that was ready to deal with something like that. However, at the same time, it was extremely difficult. Uh, after my mother's death, it, of course, was very powerful to me, and I knew that I wanted and needed to write about it, but I couldn't. I didn't write anything about it for almost three years uh, because I couldn't find a language. I had all the feelings, but it took me a long time to find a language. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Longenbach, author of five poetry collections, including Earthling and six books of criticism. A lot of your poems have the forest in them. It's either a setting, it's being lost and found mm-hmm. in the forest, it's trees growing, maybe even magically in the desert. So right. I, I did figure that the forest was more than the forest in your poems, but yeah, um, I know you live near a tiny little forest on a hill, but um, right. T- right. tell me about the forest, you know, the imagery or the, or the real meaning for that for you. Well, certainly, as you point out, across the street from me uh, is a, a little a place called Cobb's Hill, and there is a reservoir there and a very beautiful little old-growth tree forest, you know, right there in the, in the edge of the city, in the edge of the suburbia. Uh, and it's a location where I go running all the time, and which I find really interesting, uh, this sort of little patches of wilderness in the middle of the opposite of wilderness. But then what began to happen to me in writing these poems, the poems began to seem simultaneously about particular places spookily allegorical. So, you know, when the poem begins, no matter if it rains, it's time to follow the path into the forest. Now, literally, Basically, in my head, when I wrote that, I think I'm thinking, oh, God, I have to walk the dog and it's raining. But if I put it that way, it starts to sound like I'm talking about something mysterious and allegorical, the path, the forest, we must go. And I, I like that sort of feeling. It's part of that tone that, 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 that you're working with event that seems completely ordinary and mundane yet at the same time, weirdly on the cusp of reality. Um, And it's a way of thinking about poetic language that really interests me because it's not so common, it seems to me, in contemporary poetry. If you go back, you know, through great poets in the language to Blake or Marvell or something, you see it all the time, uh, language that seems uh, blatantly symbolic of a world other than the one that's just right there at your feet. But most contemporary poetry, say since Robert Lowell in the middle of the 20th century has tried to use language to just put us right here in the real, in the life of the speaker of the poem. So I liked the sense of recuperating allegory and, and otherworldliness and a sense of the mysterious 
beyondness of what might seem like ordinary experience, hence the forest. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. The poem you talked about in the beginning, pastoral. It does start with that, you know, image of the rain and following the path. And then the next line, you say the same people will be walking the same dogs, or if not the same dogs, dogs that behave in similar fashions. And one of the things I noticed through some of these, your poems, you have another line in a in in a poem it, it's a longer poem it is called climate of reason where at the end mm-hmm. the the speaker is in the desert and it says in the middle of the desert right. you might be anyone and i was yeah. curious throughout some of your poems uh i wrote down sort of what can we learn from sameness meaning is there a generic quality mm. we all share of just being alive, where maybe we're not interchangeable, but I felt like that was something you were saying. Not not that we were interchangeable, yeah. but that, that we could be anyone, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I suppose this is something that I've come to by having spent so many years trying to be a writer. <laughs> uh, because one of the things I've realized, and in a, in a way this is obvious, but it's also very difficult, is that over the years, when you're working at writing, trying to be the writer that you are, it's actually really difficult to sound like yourself on the page. And it seems like that ought to be the easiest thing in the world. It seems like it ought to be easy, like waking up and looking in the mirror and going, oh, there I am. But it's not like that at all. It's really, really hard to get those words on the page perfectly to embody the way you think or the way you speak or the way you you know, feel about things uh, to get it actually to sound just like you. Uh, So because I'm so aware of the work it takes simply to be yourself on the page, um, I suppose that makes me think about that as as a, a beautiful conundrum that's taking place not only in the act of writing, but just in the act of being alive. You know, what is, how do we become ourselves? How do we continually recognize ourselves? What is both scary and attractive about losing a sense of self by going out into the world in some kind of threatening way and then recuperating that sense of self, rebuilding it again in some way. So 
I think you're right. The, the, the poems end up being about those kinds of issues. And for me, it, it grows out of the very act of trying to make those poems. Yeah, you also have a line in that poem that says, did you know it takes a million seeds to make one tree? Your chances of surviving <laughs> in the forest, of replicating yourself, are slim. And to me, I sort of took that as, like, it is so amazing that we're even here on this planet. But I'm, yeah. I'm curious about yeah. this, this of you know, your idea of replicating yourself. What, what, what were you thinking about? Well, I suppose... Um... I'd read this quite wonderful book about trees and I'm ashamed that I can't remember the author because it's an amazing book. Um, and it's one of those books that I never imagined I would be that interested in trees that I would read a 600 page meticulous account of how trees grow and reproduce themselves and behave as it were, uh, in different, situations. And I was so struck by the fact that, as I say there, it, it's according to this this book by this biologist, it's absolutely true that generally it takes, you know, a million seeds from one tree to just get one seed that germinates, grows, and becomes another full-fledged tree. If that's, you know, that's those are the odds. And it moved me because it seemed like a beautiful and threatening mirror for human experience. You know, the, the, you know, a tree is so there and we as human beings are similarly so there, but what will be, we leave behind, you know, um, we each have what, let me do the math here. <laughs> Eight great grandparents, is that right? And most of us don't know their names. Uh, so, you know, in two generations, we disappear, even to the people we're closest to. Um, so it's that sense of tenuousness, a beautiful tenuousness of, of human life or of life in any sense that I suppose I'm thinking about when I say that the chances of surviving, the chances of replicating yourself are slim. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Longenbach, author of five poetry collections, including Earthling and six books of criticism. I want to talk about this poem called The Harbor. It has six parts, and yeah. it's. Um, I think it's really deep into these questions about when you love something deeply, um, your mother, your mother's death, um, who we are in the universe. Um, what, what mm -hmm. this line, which I loved, which is more mysterious, more inexplicable dying or staying alive. So can you talk yeah. about maybe getting all of these questions about speaker and, and subject and death and mortality, around this idea of a harbor? You know, I, it's, it's, a, it's a terrific question, and I know it's a terrific question because I've never thought about it. <laughs> Here's where I could start. I was, I was rereading Proust. Um, I had, for a six-month period, a lot of time on my hands, and I, 
and I reread all of Proust, which was both, you know, thrilling and unbelievable, and at times, you know, really strenuous hard work. But that's part of what makes the cumulative experience of it so unbelievably, overwhelmingly gorgeous. And there was an image <clears throat> somewhere in the middle there of a village that was on a kind of ragged coastline so that you looked across the houses and it would seem like the sail of the ship was going between the houses because there was a little sliver of water into the village. And I just thought that was such a magical image. And I, I borrowed that. Um, and I suppose the, the harbor then became a location for a sense of human experience that seems simultaneously safe and enclosed and, and small, and yet at the same time invaded by, you know, forces much larger than itself, that the, the sea is right there. The vastness of the sea is right there, hidden in the middle of the village. Um, and I suppose that the implications of that particular landscape were what was attractive to me and, and ended up being why I located those feelings of the poem, which you described so well, in that particular place. I like the idea, too, that a harbor can also be sort of a safe place where you get away from it all and yet you can't. You know, you're still yeah. you're still asking these questions like, how could Earth last longer than ourselves? You're asking questions about, you know, how we grow over time and childhood and mm -hmm. uh, and we're never safe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's scary. The poem suggests, but it's also completely necessary. We wouldn't. We wouldn't love being alive if and treasure it if that weren't the case and i suppose the poem <clears throat> is about really facing the implications of that facing the implications <clears throat> of the knowledge of one's mortality and acknowledging how just deeply scary that is but also recognizing how it, and really it alone, is what throws you back into your beautiful love relationship with being alive. Which which brings me to the title, Earthling, which is a poem in the book. It's, it's mm -hmm. <laughs> what joins us all. We're all earthlings, as far as I know. <laughs> And but it's yeah. also it's also a kind of bird, and I I'm wondering if you can just share some thoughts you had about the title. Well, the the title came to me I'd say about two thirds of the way through the the making of these poems, and it came to me uh, in a particular way because as the epigraph to the book suggests, <clears throat> and I didn't know this until I discovered this just a few years ago, though we think or i always thought of it, the word earthling as being a you know product of sort of you know 1950s science fiction culture you know take me to your leader um the word is actually one of the oldest words in the english language and it it 
it means. It's it's like our original word for a, a plowman. An earthling is someone who t- takes care of the earth, who who inhabits the fecundity of the land. Um, and in the very old Anglo-Saxon texts in which the original forms of this word appear with that meaning, it also ends up referring to a bird that it's theorized followed the plow, a particular kind of bird that, you know, followed the plow to, you know, you know, what to, you know, try to scavenge the scattered seeds or, you know, whatever was, was happening there. And the, I like that too, that there was this multiplicity of meanings. Um, you know, the, it spoke to my basic sense of, as you say, all of us as being these, you know, little beings that are placed on earth and are intimate with the earth. And yet it was also this bird that, you know, is this being that has this ability to fly above and, and transcend. So I was entranced with all of that, and yet I didn't I didn't want the sort of David Bowie connect, connotations of the word to go away. I wanted there to be the sort of ghost of that. Um, I liked that feeling too. So in the little poem that I called Earthling, it's you know it's God, it's probably the shortest poem in the book, um, and it's you know it's a, a weird little thing. It's about sort of looking up and imagining the whatever it is the the gods in heaven, uh, you know, preparing a beautiful meal for us and how you, you know, how it's, it's a gift and we want to go there and, but we don't want to go there. (laughs) Can't, can't we eat later? Can't we, (laughs) can't we play a little bit longer before we, we have to do this? Um, so those are, you know, all the things that came together and that I was thinking about when I, when I, use that title to to gather the poems up. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Longenbach, author of five poetry collections, including Earthling and six books of criticism. Can you read from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? You know, in thinking about this, you know, there are there are a lot of things I could choose. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I love <clears throat> language and I, I love literature uh, as much as I love any other kind of experience. But what I've chosen is a novel, a passage on the last page of a novel called Fading My Parmachine Bell. It was published in 1987 by Joanna Scott, uh, an American novelist. And she is my wife. (laughs) Uh, She was, when she wrote this page, it's charming to think of being able to use this phrase, my girlfriend. (laughs) And I remember being in the room on the day that she wrote this. And she wrote it in a kind of trance. And I have always thought that as a passage of prose, this is one of the most beautiful things that I know. I thought for years, for decades, that I would, if if I could, I would just take this passage and divide it up into lines and present it as the most beautiful poem I'd ever written because it seems to me so completely gorgeous, um, both as a construction of the English language and as 
an emotional expression of what it means to be alive. So what's happening here is that an old man who's been the protagonist of the book has gone on this long, crazy journey, and he's come back to his house and he sees his son, who he, whom he has abandoned and to whom he has returned through the window. And then, uh, and the old man is speaking, he narrates the book. Uh, and this is um, how it ends. I pound my fist against the glass. The window does not shatter. He is intent upon his task, unaware of me as if he were still a half pint curled upon my lap. The kitchen is neat, the counters clean, the floor swept. Who taught the boy his chores and then left him I do not know. I would not have predicted my son was capable of surviving solitary. I call out to him through the glass. He cannot hear me. Is there a scar upon his brow? Has he forgiven me? He cannot hear me over the rain. This is the reason. There is a foul magic in the night. The sky assaults us. The rain creates a din upon the roof, claps into puddles, strikes the glass. The wind pursues its maelstrom course around the house. We are so close, yet I cannot enter. The heavens drown out my voice. He does not know that I have come home for him. He need not be alone. If only he would turn. Do you want to say anything else about that? Yeah. Well, just uh, just reading it, it it moves me deeply in a way that has moved me many times before because of the cadences of the language, the repetitions, uh, the gorgeous, palpable, visually imagistic clarity of the writing. And then just the sentiment of it is so poignantly moving to me, the, the flawed, troubled, misguided love that's being expressed by being so close to someone and yet divided from them, forever separate by that glass, by that window. I mean, it just seems primarily evocative of something deep, uh, about the human condition to me at the same time that it is about particular characters in a particular narrative. So in all these ways, it moves me and it, and it moves me because I just remember the day, the moment, uh, in which it was written and I was there. <laughs> um, and it, it shaped my life completely. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was really hard or changed a lot from the first draft or just something that you like. Sure. Um, I think I'll, I'll take you up on the really hard part. Um, and uh, this will amplify something I had occasion to say earlier in our conversation, which was that after my mother's death, and I should say that she was very old and, and she died swiftly. So it was, you know, all good in, in a number of ways, even though it was devastating. Um, and as I said, it took me a long time to figure out how to write about that or how to inhabit those feelings. And I, and I had a lot of false starts, a lot of poems that didn't go anywhere. 
And it wasn't until I had this odd idea, for other reasons, of writing a poem that was spoken by a crocodile that I was able to get at these feelings. Um, so I'll read the first section of this poem called The Crocodile, which does not yet mention my mother, but it's setting up a voice that can do so. I don't mean it to be you know, a completely straightforward, dramatic monologue, like you're supposed to actually believe that a crocodile is talking to you. You'll see that it sort of floats in and out of the speaker sort of being the idea of a crocodile. So it seems simultaneously to be a person and this inarticulate beast talking to you. And it was the assumption of that voice that allowed me to access and write about the feelings with which I had been grappling. Um, and so I worked a long time and it was very hard to finally get to these lines, uh, which are these. What I wanted was to lift my body in unnatural postures high above the earth, to dance, to live beyond ideas. Imagine feeling assured you were beautiful. Girls wanted to run their fingers over my skin. Also guys, I bit off their hands. If called to, I could wait beneath the water a long time. I could let a bird pick leeches from my tongue. So in the moment of youth when other people embrace passion, I fell back on discipline. My throat was capable of many different sounds, but the pleasure was in keeping silent, letting parts of me be seen. Sometimes a plover mistook me for a log, but that's not deception. I really look like a log. I survived the great extinctions. I pretended to be myself. To let you know me, I need only move my eyes. Do you want to say so anything So that's the else? first section of this poem called The Crocodile, and then you know, it goes on to having created that voice to, to talk about my mother and the loss of her. Do you want to talk about anything else with that? Perhaps if I just read these few more lines from the fourth section, where this is the climax of the poem, and you'll see that it's, it's imagining the death of someone as if through the eyes of this inarticulate beast, the crocodile, but at the same time giving you access to some very intimate and private human experience. So these are the lines. When my mother died, I was right beside her. She'd been unconscious for a day. My sister and my father were there too. I leaned down close to her left ear. I whispered, thank you for everything you did for me. Thank you especially for what you did for our girls. Then, immediately, the color left her face. She was no longer in her body, and she sank beneath the lagoon. My hope is that, you know, that, that final line where these very humanly vulnerable lines suddenly explode back into the imagined world of the 
crocodile in the lagoon that there's a kind of you know quiet unnerving magic to that or that's what i felt um and without that arena of the imagined encasing and presenting those human emotions it it didn't sing to me in the same way it wasn't it wasn't possible for me in the same way so i had to by creating this fiction of another kind of speaker it paradoxically brought me closer to the reality of what i had experienced and felt and said one of my favorite lines is is in that poem you just write someday i won't be hungry which i find mm. so devastating and funny at the same time <laughs> thank you yeah um uh, that they're that the poem tonally uh is various um and though it's it's a very serious poem and talking about harrowing things there are moments in it that are kind of wryly funny at the same time and i appreciate that you that you hear that um there's a kind of you know silly abject weariness to that line that uh uh that i also find amusing i'm, I'm glad it comes through yeah, because you're like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yep, yep. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Longenbach, author of five poetry collections, including Earthling and six books of criticism. Where do you write? I write mostly in our house in my study. And uh, for years, I was like 15 years, it was this beautiful room in the back of the house in the basement, which because the house is on the hill, on a hill, it's really the first floor at that point. And I loved being down there in my little burrow. But about two years ago, I moved up to the top of the house. I don't know why it was just I couldn't explain it. I wanted a different view. <laughs> so now I'm very happily in this little room up at the top looking out over the trees rather than up through them. So, and that's where I do all of my writing. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I am a homebody. Uh, so I don't go to another place. I have a very active life as a committed amateur musician. And since early childhood, I've played the piano and I've never stopped doing that somewhat seriously. Um, though in the last seven years, as some poems in Earthling suggest, I have been learning to play the lute. So, and I do play the lute, not very well, <laughs> but I work at it. And it's nice to be a beginner at something and to just have this beautiful little task of learning to play this gorgeous music from the Renaissance on this beautiful archaic instrument. So that's a place where I go um, when I can't write. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? That has <clears throat> absolutely and without question for now a few months shy of 37 years been my wife, the novelist, Joanna Scott, and it is likewise the case with her. She's the author of 
12 works of fiction, and I have read and reread and read again every single sentence that she has written, and she has done the same for me, and my life as a writer is unthinkable without that. Um, we know each other, and we know each how the other inhabits language so intimately uh, that sometimes it, though it's not literally the case in any way, it sometimes feel that, feels that we've written these things together. I, that, that, that exchange and my trust in her absolute, straightforward, honest ability to hear when what I'm doing is right and when what I'm doing is wrong is, is, uh, is just everything to me. And how have you dealt with rejection? You keep writing. There's a lot of rejection out there. Uh, in fact, that's what there mostly is. <laughs> you know, even when you when you write a book and you're proud of it, you know, you feel good for about ten seconds, and then you know you're back in the wilderness. Because um, really, it's not interesting having achieved something. It's interesting groping to achieve something. So you always live in this space of failure and rejection or potential rejection. And um, I suppose I would say it really doesn't bother me that much uh, because it's how it is. And if you're not feeling that, you're not risking something. You're not pushing out into the world. So uh, we writers must feel it and we must inhabit it. And all you can do is to keep writing because it is a part of the act of writing to feel that, that rejection. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> My favorite word? You know, it always seems to me that, you know, poets are supposed to like, you know, fancy words like incarnadine or something. But really, my favorite words are the simplest words like, you know, the or and or very. I Nothing gives me more pleasure when in a poem I can use in a very particular way one of the most bland and basic words of the language and make it seem just right. Um, so I'll pick very among, among those words I listed. That will be my favorite. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was poet James Longenbach. His latest collection is called Earthling. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.